Future trading involves risk and is not suitable for all investors. Content provided in this segment is meant for educational purposes and is not a solicitation to buy or sell commodities. Hello, and welcome to Parlor to Plate, a weekly podcast from Everag Insights dedicated to offering listeners enlightening discussion and actionable intelligence about dairy markets. I'm your host, Phil Plord. We're excited to have you along. If you enjoy the show, please like us, subscribe, and tell a friend or two. Okay, first things first. Let's timestamp this episode. It's a little after 1 p.m. Central Time on Wednesday, May 10. Today, CME spot block cheddar was at about 167 per pound. That's still down two cents from where it was a week ago. Barrels are sitting at 154, down a nickel compared to last week. Butter is at 240, also down a nickel. Lastly, in the dairy complex, nonfat dry milk is trading at about $1.18 per pound, down a penny from a week ago. Looking at grains, nearby corn, $6.46 a bushel, up a penny versus last week. And soybeans are near $14.39, down $0.09. Cents. Let's turn to our all-star panel. We are lucky today to have some big-time players with us. First off, welcome to John Spainhauer, one of the leaders of Everag's commercial risk management business. Hey, Phil. Great to be here. Next, from the foothills of the Sierra Nevada in California, we have Tiffany Lamandola, a major player on our producer risk management team. Thanks, Phil. And from beautiful Platteville, Wisconsin, Mike North, president of the Everag Producer Division. Good to be joining you, Phil. As is the case every week, we'll start with what's the buzz, talk about what's making the most noise in the areas we cover. John, why don't you lead off today? You bet, Phil. Well, the first thing I think we want to start out with is pointing out that year to date, we've had record spot volumes when we combine the CME block and barrel. And that is just really incredible. It's great from a liquidity standpoint, but I think it's important to examine to a certain degree, why do we have those record spot volumes? And just from afar, we would say that when we have exports and we we make cheese for the export market, it, it leaves the country and prices here tend to rise. If we don't have exports, then uh, typically, a lot of that cheese stays in the domestic market, and we see that cheese come to the CME because it's generally uncontracted, and CME prices decline. Again, as a result right now of seeing these record spot volumes, one has to conclude maybe we don't have the exports that we need to absorb all of that product. It, it's a bit confusing from the standpoint that if we go back in time just to March, and and we look at the export report that came out in March, we see that there were very high or relatively high cheese exports as compared to last year. But I think you can see that as we moved into April, that was really when we started seeing the product come to the exchange. And as we moved into April, I think we didn't have as many exports. And that's where we started to see this product come. Why the transition from March to April? Well, more than likely when you go back in time, you know, these contracts were cut a long time ago during a time when the U.S. spot and futures prices were well below the international price. And so we had these longer term contracts. Yeah. My hunch, John, is that there was a lot of spot traffic. If you go back and look at the barrel price chart, we were below 160 for, I don't know, four or five weeks between January and February. And I would not be shocked if when that little burst of March business got built. And to your point, while we were exporting that cheese, volume went down in Chicago, prices went up, 
And then poof, April was like a different story. And it still feels like we're there today, right? Still feels that way. And there's no doubt that somewhere down here in that dollar low 150s area in barrels, we probably will capture some exports blocks. And then 160s will probably capture some exports. But right now that feels like that's going to be more of a spot deal if that happens and not a longer term contractual deal. And if that's the case, then we, we might be going through these periods of fits and starts where we have some spot exports, then lose them, have some spot exports and then lose them. One of the things that can just make a big difference on that is if our futures curve were to get to a price that's competitive with the rest of the world. And right now, just our July to D's price, I would say July to D's cheese is significantly higher than the European price, European mozzarella, which we would say is probably our most important touchstone when it comes to what price are we comparing to is in the one low 150s right now. So again, 150 barrels, 150 mots, maybe we get some 150 mots and a futures curve at 155 maybe in Europe against a 195 July to D's curve probably isn't going to get the job done. Tiffany, what's the buzz in your world? I think that, you know, this sort of, you know, up and down cheese market action and the premium down the road are, are things that are very much front and center for you with dairy farmers. Yeah, absolutely. John teed me up just perfectly. So given this breakdown in current spot levels, dairy producers have really been focusing and wanting to discuss that premium that is available out in the futures curve, as John noted. So we have fourth quarter class three above $19. That's a $3 advantage to where we're seeing May trade right now. It's over $4 above, you know, if we run kind of current spot prices through the class three formula. In that regard, it looks really appealing. It is not necessarily appealing by 2022 standards. And, and that's, I think, the hard part, particularly given where costs were at last year and where we kind of still are for dairy producers, that's the difficult part. Looks really great relative to current, still a little scary when it comes to the cost side. However, as we look further down the curve, and I'm sure Mike will mention, those grain prices have eased. So in an environment with lower feed costs, those numbers start looking a lot better. And I think that has been the main focus of conversations for dairy producers here lately is sort of re-leveling, if you will, where feed costs and milk prices might be looking forward. Mike, what's the buzz in your neighborhood these days? Well, all sorts of things to talk about in the grain markets. Uh, planting pace well ahead of schedule, as noted in Monday's report. Corn coming through at 49% planted versus the five-year average of 42 and only 21% last year. Uh, soybeans at 35% relative to a 21% five-year average and 11% last year at this time. So well ahead of pace, bolstering some ideas of a, you know, a, a growing and potentially large crop in the United States. Uh, that bolts on to an already sizable soybean crop in South America where private analysts have already bumped the bean numbers up to as high as 154 million metric tons. Even north of where we started making some of these projections last fall. So big crop in Brazil, which is finding its way into Argentina uh, with some of the, the, the slower pace elsewhere on the export front. So we're softening some of those product prices, uh, bringing soybean meal back to 400 bucks a ton. We've got a 
you know, big question mark around the Ukraine grain deal. Uh, will they, won't they? In prior renewals of this deal, we've had kind of a, a 90-10, yes, no likelihood of them renewing it. That's kind of slid back to about 60-40 after a supposed attack on the Kremlin and ultimately a little bit of a bar brawl at most recent meeting among some diplomats between the two different countries. So a little bit of a question mark around that. And then, of course, you add on top of that, because of the big crop in South America, some lower prices there that are really dragging world values lower. Soybeans trading about $1.70 below current U.S. prices and and corn about uh, 70, 75 cents. So really getting a little bit of a mixed signal in the world markets right now as to whether we should carry premium to support a potential shortage of supply coming out of Ukraine, or if we should try to move towards South America and be on a more even keel price-wise with the big crops coming out of there, especially in the backdrop of a great planting season in the U.S. That's going to take us to the center of the plate today because, yeah, we're still only halfway planted on corn and there's a long way to go. But I think we are really shifting into the time of the year for both the crop side of the world and the dairy side of things where weather becomes a favorite topic. Is it going to be too hot somewhere? Is it going to be too wet somewhere? What's going on with the weather? Tiffany, I see today that the high in Visalia, California, 75 degrees, very, very uh, mild and temperate for this time of the year. Can you talk about what you've been seeing in California with the flooding? with the snow melt, talking to our producers out there, and also, you know, what summer can look like in California and, and what how that matters. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we've made it to the big time here in California when there's a hashtag around our upcoming summer. The big melt, as you would call it, is still um, forecasted to come, meaning we still have a lot of snow in the mountains, particularly in the Southern Sierra, and that's just above where the major flooding occurred earlier in the winter. As the numbers I've checked, we're over 400% of normal in terms of snow and water equivalent for this time of year. April was pretty cool. So we might have melted a little bit of that snow, but we didn't do a lot of the work. May has also been mild, as you pointed out. So we still have a few months here to go. I mean, that's usually the beauty of the snowpack is that we melt it through the summer and it feeds our reservoirs. Obviously, we are concerned about that snow melt happening too fast in a way that our waterways, our levees and our dams that stand in the way of additional flooding, you know, can can they handle that? So it's really going to be determined a lot on how fast we do melt that, how quickly it comes down out of the mountains. There is still some flooding in that Tulare Lake Basin. I don't think anybody expects that water to go away anytime soon. In fact, I think some of the snow melt will raise those levels. For the most part, the dairies that were dislocated in that area, not necessarily going back. I think you know a few of them have been able to. Others have relocated. I've heard one sold out. So I don't know that we're anticipating it to maybe impact another big swath of dairies here in the state, but it could, you know, double down again, I guess, on that same area is really kind of the watch factor for right now. 700 inches of snow at Lake Tahoe this year. Yeah. Normal is 400 inches, which still seems like a lot of snow, but 700 inches is, I mean, that's massive snowpack up there in the mountains. 
Massive. Yep, absolutely. I'm watching videos of them clearing the passes right now, and there's still like 11 foot berms, you know, along the highways over some of our major passes. So let me tell you, I don't like that drive ever. I don't know if I'd like it, you know, with huge snowfall all around me. That's right. Phil, those are some pretty incredible numbers. Tiffany, how are dairy farmers in California handling this or and expected to handle this in terms of what are they going to do from, you know, what whatever might be coming our way here and how that might affect milk production? Yeah, I, you know, so I think that atmospheric river that came through February, March did the biggest damage. It, it definitely flooded some dairies anywhere. I've heard between eight and a dozen in that Tulare Basin area. You know, those cows have been moved for the most part. I've heard a couple maybe have gone back. Again, I don't know that what we're expecting in terms of snow melt is going to impact yet a whole nother set of dairies. I, th- I think that Tulare area basin is, is filling up. And so I think that will continue to add water. Everybody is in a little different situation across the state. There hasn't been as many issues up more North Valley um, or Northern California. I mean, for some, the water has been a welcome sight. We watered our winter forages. You know, in some places, it will add to additional forage. Certainly in areas that are underwater, we have lost that forage. So it is yet to be seen kind of how that all balances out. And so I think it's a little bit of a waiting game at this point to see. But I, I guess at this point, we're not expecting there's going to be any sort of new areas impacted from the terrible situation back in February and March. I would even jump in and add to that. When Tiffany and I were hosting some meetings in the Valley over the late April period, there were several producers that even were, you know, willing to say that they're going to have an amazing forage production year. In some instances, folks even telling me maybe twice as much as normal, which, you know, as much as it's a, a, an absolute disaster where it's flooded, there may be some relief coming out of you know, more northern parts of the valley that have extra forage to offer. John, from a commercial desk perspective, I know a lot of our clients look at the weather, generally speaking, in California and elsewhere looking for heat. What are you looking at, you know, week to week, day to day in terms of weather? And, and, and how do we talk to clients about that? Or what do they tell you? Well, I think this year is, uh, every year is different, obviously. Times when we have relatively tight milk, then a relatively tight milk situation in terms of production. I feel like the weather can have more of an outsized effect, um, even minor events. And then in years where the milk market is a little long, which I would characterize this year as being, at least right now, these weather events, you know, they, I don't want to say they come and go, but they, they have less of an impact on the market than you would expect. I know if we go back in time, just, you know, going back to the flooding in California, There were some real concerns about that. And indeed, it did have a negative effect on milk production. But on a national basis, it just hasn't really had an effect, right? And so this summer, I think people are going to be looking for, does that flooding continue or does it contribute uh, or does that water contribute to a little bit better milk production? And then here in the Midwest, obviously, we'll be keeping an eye on, is there a drought situation And I'm not so sure that that's in the cards as of right now from a forecast standpoint. Yeah, I know we get a lot of phone calls when Visalia gets to be like 115 and, you know, 68 or 70 overnight. And, you know, the expectation is that we're losing milk somewhere. But uh, we're a little bit away from the peak of the heat season. Right, Tiffany? We're maybe July, August, right, is when we start seeing those really roasting days. 
Yep. Thankfully, we've got a few more months before we have to worry about that. Uh, Fresno in August. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you know, <laughs> the airfare's cheap. Um, <laughs> so, Mike, uh, in the Midwest, you know, the drought map looks a lot better today than it did at harvest time in, in the Midwest, especially the Eastern Corn Belt, but basically just about everywhere. Seems like the planting season's off to a reasonable start. I would say the Northern Plains are still a little cold. What are you seeing weather-wise with grains and what do you expect to see uh, in terms of how we react over the next four to six weeks? So you bring up the uh, big watch point in the Corn Belt. The northern tier of that is certainly much slower than the central or southern tiers. And as you evaluate the weeks ahead, we're going to be watching how fast they can get that seed in the ground and whether or not we're going to have to make any changes to the prospects of planted acres. If you go back to March and take a look at what they projected, we're still looking for 92 million acres of corn. And, you know, that being said, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have to uh, see if that can be uh, achieved. So, you know, that's going to be certainly a watch point. But I will tell you that as you look at the forecasts, the forecasts almost across the board suggest we're going to have a mild summer. If you follow the ENSO forecasting models, every single one of the models that they use to predict the El Nino versus La Nina pattern suggests we're going to be in a moderate El Nino all the way through the year. That generally favors good yields in the United States. If you look at the drought map, the Corn Belt is in a very healthy place. The driest area of the country still remains to be that area just east of the Rocky Mountains, starting in southern South Dakota and then going all the way down through Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and into Texas. While those areas are, you know, obviously important producers of, of crops, they, they don't carry as much weight as areas like Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, the I states, as we refer to them. So we're in a fairly healthy place in the core production regions. And uh, yeah, as you pointed out, these next uh, couple of months, it's going to be, you know, every forecast, every week, every month, trying to figure out what that weather means to the overall yield picture. Hey, Mike, what's the most memorable weather event you can think of over the last 10 or 15 years? And how can things change, I guess, going forward here over the next few months? Well, uh, this is an easy one for me. It was 2012. I remember getting on a plane on June 15th, heading to California to give a series of talks and uh, got this marvelous rain uh, that greeted me all the way to the airport. And boy, I was smiling. That was the last rainfall I saw until August of that year. And we took a crop that looked fantastic nationwide and a yield that was very strong in a market that had been softening all the way through June, had even started to see futures prices touch $4 uh, in that uh, second to third week of June. Everything flipped. And by the time we got into mid-July, we were trading corn prices that were spot north of eight bucks and uh, new crop uh, just behind it at seven and a half. And when you take a look at that particular year, we termed it a flash drought. And, you know, you look at how fast that changed. In a matter of three weeks, we moved the needle by $3 plus on corn price. And the yield, which we were talking about at Trendline, finished the year at 
120 and change, uh, well below trend line, well below expectations, and it all happened just that quick. And so that's why weather is important. And as we say in Wisconsin, if you don't like the weather, weather, wait five minutes. These things do change fast. And, you know, as we look at this crop year, as we talk about an accelerated planting pace and we have these big, you know, sugar plum dreams of big yields in corn, we can't forget that that can change very, very quickly with a shift in weather. And uh, as much as we think that we're going to have a mild summer today, that can change. All right, guys, time for our last segment. Tiffany, what are you doing to help clients these days? What are you talking to them about mostly? Yeah, back to my theme of above $19 milk on the futures curve in Q4. Um, That has really been my focus a lot this week is just discussing those opportunities the market is still presenting us with, um, with folks. I don't think we're doing all the milk, but we're definitely getting a nice good start with the hope, again, that this crop turns out fantastic and costs come down some. We want to go ahead and take advantage of those premiums out there on the curve. John Spainhauer, what have your conversations been featuring? Well, Phil, you know, I, I never want to tell anybody don't be hedged, right? It's just not the, uh, it's not very great advice. At the same point in time, I think it comes down to what type of hedge you're going to have on. And on the commercial side of things, we tend to look at it and say prices still seem relatively high. On the butter market, it's come down a little bit, but it's still 250, 240 in here is a relatively high price. Get into that cheese side of things and you know, when, when you really look at it, a dollar ninety-five ish for July to D's cheese is still relatively high. So we would tend to look at it to say that doesn't mean we can't go higher at the same point in time. Look to establish some sort of coverage that gives you some optionality, some ability to participate in the downside while still making sure that in case demand comes roaring back or European milk supply dwindles or to Mike and Tiffany's point, maybe domestic milk production gets hurt by one of these weather events. Make sure we've got that coverage but do allow yourself some downside ability. Leave the escape routes open. All right, Mike, what about you? What, what are you talking to clients about these days? Well, from a feed perspective, uh, the one message we're sending to our dairymen is, hey, look, prices have softened considerably, both in corn and soybean meal, and that's impact on your feed costs looking forward uh, certainly has a big impact. Right now, spot prices for soybean meal are back to some of the lowest levels that we've seen going back to last fall and last spring. And each time we got here, the market found a lot of support and went riveting higher by as much as $100 a ton on soybean meal and 80 cents to a dollar on corn. And so as you look at these prices, as much as we have optimism that feed costs could be cheaper come fall, we can't overlook the, the potential surprises in weather, and, and we can't take for granted the fact that these prices have fallen. So take some defensive action. We really like option strategies around some of that risk that are going to protect you from a rise, but give you some openness to the downside as we look towards fall. So kind of uh, right along with your theme, Phil, keeping the escape hatches open and uh, allowing this thing to uh, move towards you. But being defensive enough to keep it from moving away from you too. Thank you, Mike. That's it for today's show. Thanks to our panelists, Mike North, John Spainhauer, and Tiffany Lamondola. Thanks as always to Paige Driscoll, our master media person for making us all sound good. And thanks to you, our listeners. 
Once again, if you like the show, hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to learn more about how we help people manage risk, contact us at insights at ever.ag.